Comrades, welcome to your premium episode of, for this week, episode 15, continuing the conversation, the awesome conversation that uh, Ed and Jeremy had with Aaron Beninov. Before we get rolling on um, talking more about automation and the future of work and a post-scarcity world and all that, there, there's some some breaking news coming across across the old FT wire that we got to get into. Uh, the Ant Group, which is controlled by uh, the founder of Alibaba, Jack Ma, um, the, you know, a huge, some people call it like, you know, China's Amazon, but it's so much more than that. It's such, it's, the company is so much more than just Amazon in terms of like yeah. retail and logistics. But mm-hmm. Ant, the Ant Group, which is a big fintech company, controls the Alipay um, mobile platform finance ecosystem just just did an IPO and has raised or set to raise more than thirty four billion dollars off after setting the prices of shares in its IPO, Insane. putting putting this Chinese payment group on track to top Saudi Aramco as the biggest ever market listing, which uh, raked in. billion in 2019, a paltry sum for the major oil sovereign wealth fund for Saudi Arabia. Right. And also like more valuable than I'm sure most banks, definitely by some of the largest ones like JP Morgan Chase, right? $310 billion net worth just puts it ahead of almost every single other financial firm by far. And bigger than Alibaba too, right? Because Alibaba, when it went on its IPO, raised like twenty-five billion out of value. Well, I mean, not not bigger than it is right now, but bigger than it was at uh, at the time. Then it all went public. Yeah, and and importantly, this thirty-four billion dollars that the Ant Group has raised only accounts for eleven percent of its total outstanding stock, which means Amazing. the company is valued at $313 billion. Amazing. Amazing. That is made up. That is made <laughs> up. Fucking fictitious. So do you, you guys remember the uh, the Robin Williams movie uh, where he played like an adult Peter Pan, like that like horrible banker, mm-hmm. adult Peter Pan? Yeah, and, Hook, dude. I watched that yeah, movie Hook, on so, repeat when I was a kid. He, uh, you know, so you guys remember the dinner scene where they're, you know, all the kids are just like sitting around and, 
you know, they're like just gorging themselves on this invisible food. And he's just sitting there and he's looking around. And he's like, eat what? There's nothing here. Gandhi ate more than this. You know, then you look from their point of view and they're just gorging themselves on all kinds of shit, like all these mm-hmm. sweets, like pies, you know, like mm-hmm. anything a kid could fucking want. These money, that's what this money is. It's fucking arbitrary. It's made up. Instead of these kids just gorging themselves, you've got all these rich assholes filling their pockets with all this money and shit, and nobody else can see it but them. Dude, that's a perfect fucking analogy. Yeah, because because Hook, uh, like Robin Williams, was playing this older Peter Pan who was this like financier. He was like this kind of mm-hmm. like Carl Icahn, uh, fucking like predatory finance, like 80s kind of guy. Uh, and that, oh, that's such a perfect analogy. Cause then, you know, he goes, he goes up to the kids, you know, who, 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 you know, they, they can, they can see value. They can see food. They can see whatever their heart desires. Cause it's all in their brain. They're imagining it. They're willing it into reality through, through the, through a feat of pure imagination. And that's what this capital is. That's, that's what this. $34 billion that Ant that's is insane. raising. That's what this $29 billion that Saudi Aramco is raised. Like this, it's this. insane. Cause like, you know, on the one hand, right. Ant group, Alipay, Alibaba, you know, these groups are like integral to like an entire market that also like through industrial policy has warded its, has, has blocked itself off from the rest of the world so that it can develop competitors to the rest of the world. Right. So like, you know, in one sense, I think like they have, they have twice as many, you know, customers as, you know, PayPal, right? They have trillions of dollars that flow through them, but $34 billion, <laughs> you know, uh, to, to go public for, uh, it's, um, I mean, all that, it, it also makes me think about how, you know, at a certain point, you know, the amount of money that gets, that flows into valuations in FinTech is speculative, you know? Like, I remember um, there's this essay that Morisov had, a new left review, on the great, on the socialist calculation debate. And he talked about how, you know, there's a lot of hoopla among capitalists at the, uh, you know, 2018, 2019 about FinTech. And when you looked at where the money was going, a lot of it was just going into maintaining legacy systems and fueling uh, server costs and funding mergers and acquisitions. You know, like the money was really being used to like maintain large outdated systems that were, dealing with large amounts of people, at least, you know, in the Western countries that he examined. Yeah, or or going into rebranding old practices. Like I also just read um, uh, in the FT about these, quote, wage access fintech startups, which are literally just payday loan. Payday loan, of course. It's it's a (laughs) rebranding of payday loan. But but it's all happening through these like through these apps and these like fintech startups that, you know, so this is the new like Quicken Loans, right? It's all happening through. No, man, it's wage access. Yeah. And there's money in that. There's money in stealing money from workers and there's money in lying to people and and putting the hyper and hyper exploitation. Right. Yeah, that's profitable. Uh, It's not good. It's not moral. It's not healthy or sustainable, but it's profitable. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely wild. Like, like my eyes are just bugging out and uh, reading about this at the the ant, you know, IPO got me thinking as well a lot about what Aaron Beninov is talking about in his work, because it is really setting up this divide between fictitious capital and real capital between um, finance, you know, and, and the, 
manufacturing industrial sector you know this is one of aaron's core arguments is that manufacturing is this like really anomalous growth engine for the economy and it's being so hollowed out and in its place is coming uh these fintech companies finance right which are 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 not in the business of producing anything real, right? They're not in the business of real capital. They're in the world of pure imagination. You know, Jeremy brings up Hook. I'm constantly thinking about Willy Wonka. <laughs> you know, when when right. I'm when I'm thinking about Elon Musk, or I'm thinking about how how you know the the these the tech economy works. I'm thinking about it in terms of, you know, it is just a world of pure imagination, you know, coming to my chocolate factory where everything looks amazing and looks great. Um, but, but in reality, we're not producing anything. Right. You know, some dreams. I think also it's really interesting. One thing that's always interested me through the years is, you know, villains and, um, you know, there's like a genre of like modern movies that are like situated in, like global conspiracies and have like an action and their action or thrillers and they have a villain that's supposed to be like this really sophisticated evil person who's upset with the world you know like the bond films love to do this the kingsman films which are kind of like you know in conversation with the bond films do this and it makes me think about how like you know what like those villains are representing like one attempt to not really engage with like what a what a like if someone had resources and also had like a fundamental moral critique of the world what they would say because they all just sound vaguely like oh there's something wrong with our world <laughs> you know and and at the same time the uh the billionaires here you know the tech billionaires especially when you ask them when you press them really like what's wrong with the world they're just like oh, you know like we're not connected enough or you know not everybody has facebook basics and not like just like fundamental questions like people don't get to fucking eat you know or people don't have enough housing or people don't have health care because if you say that then there's an immediate uh line of inquiry that follows from there which is like well yeah you know one of the reasons they don't is because people like you exist that hoard mm-hmm. billions and billions and billions of dollars from a product that you created that doesn't really get people there. In fact, it in one way or another might make it harder for people to get there. And you don't use that money to then help people get there. You use it to like, you know, rehabilitate your image with micro projects that purport to help people get there. Yeah, it's this embodiment of pure capital, right? Because Mar- mm-hmm. I mean, Marx talks about capital as money in motion. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it, that that's what capital is. It's it's circulation, and it's this need for for constant circulation, like a shark, right? If it stops, it dies, uh, and and there it, it's hard not to see, you know, ant the ant group toppling, uh, you know, uh, Aramco Saudi Aramco's IPO as this kind of, uh, you know, it, it's it's really putting a fine point on this shift in the economy, right? Because at least, yeah, I mean, the Saudi Aramco IPO is also just pure, just fucking insane, right? Like last right. year, raising almost $30 billion. Uh, but it is also importantly linked to the production of 
um, a, a, a raw resource, a, a real and, and raw resource in terms in oil, right? And, and a resource that like also has a set of timelines in mind and deadlines for its use. Like we know for a fact what's going to happen if we keep using this, this resource at X level for Y time. And even despite that, it, it was able to achieve that sort of valuation, right? Because yeah. of its value. And it's it's a resource that that uh, fueled quite literally fueled mm-hmm. um, industrialization and manufacturing and you know all of that sector that that kind of you know those engines of growth. Uh, of course, it obviously has caused uh, unimaginable amounts of of human and ecological misery. Uh, those um, are externalities. <laughs> externalities. <laughs> 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 but but then it's it's hard not to see, you know, the ant group uh, outpacing that IPO uh, just a year later in the midst of this global pandemic, right. which, you know, is going to, um, has already caused a massive recession and will have a, a lingering effect for, for at least a decade to come, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's hard not to see that, you know, the ant group is is premised on uh, just this, this like taking this logic of capital and finance to its logical extreme, where it's not, it's not just about this, like, you know, oh, this this proves that data is now not only like oil, it's actually more valuable than oil, right? Because data is part of what like these tech companies like Alibaba and and the Ant Group and Alipay are about. But but more importantly, what they're really about is inter- is controlling the ecosystem and and being the ultimate intermediary for. The circulation of money and finance, right? That's what that's what Alipay does. Is it, it's it's an intermediary for um, financial services. Yeah, you know, I think it is also really interesting that, yeah, as you point out, like this is something that's happening in the middle of like a recession that, even as deep as it might tend to be or look to be, it doesn't somehow seem like it's going to deflate the tech bubble that's been persistent, right? And like the biggest IPOs of all time. Are from Ant Group, Saudi Aramco, Alibaba Group, uh, Agricultural Bank of China, ICBC, and SoftBank. Shout out to friend of the show uh, and sponsor, <laughs> SoftBank. Ooh, right. Uh, the ICBC is uh, the Int- Industrial and Commercial Bank of uh, China. Right. So these are like the largest. IPOs happening at different times, but for Ant Group to emerge and to come in at at the time it does right it is interesting that they're looking at uh a, a situation where most people worldwide are probably and you know including in china are going to experience like economic slowdown jobless recovery you know miseration accelerated by this by this pandemic well maybe not you know china because they were able to handle it relatively quickly but still within like a larger like even if they handled the pandemic quickly there's still been like long-term slowdown of economic growth even there um and the most profitable or the most exciting part of the offering market is like a company that can insert itself into like what remains of individual consumer transactions just like you know the second biggest one is like a company that will you know for all intents and purposes runs the monopoly or runs the oligopoly on 
oil, right, on the on the resource that powers industrial civilization through energy, through petrochemicals, uh, through political arrangements, through the dollar, through you know the petrodollar system, uh, which mm-hmm. in itself is a pretty integral uh, system to geopolitical balance in the world. Um, I think it is a little worrying or people should ask themselves why it is that like the most valuable companies consistently are ones that like are at the center of not like real value added to your individual life or other individual lives, but to uh, enterprises by capitalists to ensure that they can continue to offer a product, that they continue to insert themselves in transactions, that they can continue to like do industrialize, can continue to create a certain product, right? I don't think it's a coincidence that a lot of the most stupendous IPOs are really just like these sorts of projects where it feels like a circle jerk because they're going to get like another opportunity to do the thing that lets them do more opportunity, get more opportunities. Right. Which is just like yeah. And it's, it's perverse. Mm-hmm. It's perverse that these are th- these financial instruments are called financial products as well, right. because they're not fucking yeah. products. They're not producing anything. And that's really important, right? It's like production is dead. Growth is dead because it is all about it's, it's, it's pure redistribution, right? I mean, the, the, the reason why billionaires around the world are, are multiplying their wealth in, you know, in 2020 is not because, uh, you know, there's been a lot of growth, quite the opposite. There's been a lot of contraction. What, they, what it is, is there's been a lot of redistribution. And this is something that Aaron talks about in his book as well as a really core um, kind of trend that's been happening is this, this redistribution um, of wealth from uh, wage uh, or from from labor in terms of wages to capital, right? So it's 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 not it's not like um, oh it, it's not the case that the rising tide is raising all boats. It's that you know the big yachts are fucking like harpooning and salvaging right. all the smaller boats and consuming them, right? Mm-hmm. And and Aaron's book is like so great one because it's like such a comprehensive accounting of why the automation discourse is wrong and in fact we already live in a world where most people are where their relationship to their labor is equivalent to what automation theorists warn it will be with automation right but also the, the this accounting of the economic history reveals just how bad things are and have been i mean there's so many moments where it's like there's an economic factor thing or phenomenon that is like so obvious and has been noted but has not been talked about the way it is i remember talking with him about you know one of the one of the first and earliest points he makes through like a graph is talking about how um there have been discussions misguided discussions about the shifts in median you know income um and the labor share of you know income for example Mm -hmm. but they also miss the point that when you you know, divergate uh, median and average, that the average is radically higher. And the reason the average is radically higher is because the extremes are radically higher. But that mm-hmm. is like a, one of the one of the points, that's a, such like a simple way to explain that the richest people are getting even more richer that I you rarely see mentioned, right? There, there are quirks that he talks about also in like statistical analysis that they've had in uh, looking at the production of... Um, production of computers, for example, in the United States, right, where the shifts in the amount of processing power are considered to be uh, shifts in the amount of computers produced. 
and that this inflates the productivity metrics we have for the tech sector, right? And that the tech sector is supposed to be the most dynamic sector of the economy. It's the sector where the, we have the richest companies, we have the most consistent stock growth, we have the most consistent job growth. And yet when you investigate, you see inflation of the productivity metrics, inflation of the uh, year to year growth of the output, and also massive inflation of valuations because of the speculative bubble caused one by over by you know distorted reporting of this stuff, but two, because there's nowhere else where you get any sort of real return on your capital, right? You're gonna park it in cap in tech because one tech is appears to be the best, and two, because you can probably use tech in a way that will protect your um, your gains, your capital and in investment, your return, your position your class position or your class interest, right? You can use the, you can invest in technology given the background political valence of the society to create stuff that's not emancipatory, but further deepens the exploitation to get you more profits. And I think that's like a really valuable insight he constantly brings in, which is that like the automation theorists, you know, it's not so much that like they're willfully misreading it, but the small mistakes that are made along the way result in an upside down picture of the world that prevents us from seeing what is really going on, which is like things have just, we already live in the nightmare. Yeah, this is a, and this is a, a core theme of TMK as well as what these companies are really good at doing is employing fucking uh, accountants who are like Michelin yes. chefs who are, you know, <laughs> cooking, cooking those books up, uh, you know, serving. We should get a Yelp fancy. going for accountants, you know, um, <laughs> we could have like a Gordon Ramsay of uh, chefs of uh, accountants. I don't know who it would be probably whoever was uh, organizing the Panama Papers thing um, <laughs> and got uh, the lead journalist killed. I think that that would be the Gordon Ramsay of the whole entire operation. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and another uh, core point that you got to um, as well there, Ed, is that what, I mean, what these companies, what these tech companies are also really good at doing is producing products and services that serve to secure the position of these capitalists and of these companies, right? By hollowing out uh, anything that could threaten their position. So, you know, linking up uh, to a point that um, Jeremy made early on in the in the interview with Aaron around the way that uh, the unemployment system in, in in states is completely, you know, it's anti it's antiquated, um, it, it's it's shitty, it doesn't work, um, it's prone to uh, and, and by design, right? I mean, these right. things have been have been hollowed out by design and they're prone to fraud and they're prone to breaking and, and all of that by design. And, 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 you know, what that does is it allows, uh, fucking ghouls, um, like Jason Kalanakis, who we've talked about before, <laughs> oh uh, you know, uh, one of these venture friend capitalists, of the show. <laughs> friend of the show, Jason at Jason on Twitter. Or um, I'm show, not, I'm not it. saying harass him on Twitter at Jason, <laughs> Uh, I'm not saying that. I'm not <laughs> saying that. <laughs> but he had a, as if as if he had like heard it, as if he'd heard our interview with Aaron before it even got released. He tweeted right. out, uh, you know, quote, 
uh, gig economy jobs are a free market safety net that catches people before the taxpayer funded safety net, which is pretty awesome when you think about it. <laughs> <Right>. Awesome, dude. <laughs> Excellent. Most, a lot of VCs are not that open about their views unless they code it in a certain way. Like most of them are like really, they're, they're putting it through their uh, entrepreneur translator three or four times. And then they're giving <laughs> us some speak to, to use. And he, but he kind of just got way too excited and said it. And that, and I think that's also the value <laughs> of following some of these people online because they do that. They do that a lot. Like sometimes they just get so excited at the idea of getting like a 7% return that they forget that like the company doesn't let its workers use the bathroom, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it, it's it's like the VC equivalent of, uh, of, of snorting like a fat rail of Coke and then just like, <laughs> and, and, and just spouting off at the mouth being, oh, like these gig economy jobs it's like a safety net in the free market man it's like, oh, like all the <laughs> oh god we could probably do like um it's like you're saying the quiet part loud man you're saying the quiet part loud <laughs> <laughs> yeah maybe there's like a vc spoken word tournament and they're like trying to sell like exploitation i don't know how they they'd be like selling yourself the lowest <laughs> price <laughs> strength of will that's what we're talking about <laughs> maybe like the haikus they, there's this video game ghost of shishima where they make you do like haikus and you can kind of choose them man i should have written like a haiku for this <laughs> because they, i could probably come i'll come up with one during the show uh for a haiku for um becoming a gig worker inside of uh empire that's uh praying at every corner um and having a vc tell you that it's virtuous and it's a part of the safety net it's part of the safety net and right. you know again it's it goes back to this thing as well. That's like everything new is actually old and it's just rebranded right. as new, mm -hmm. whether it's the fintech companies rebranding payday loans as wage access mm -hmm. um, or whether it's this, this strategy of uh, systematically hollowing out social services and social safety nets and, and you know, these kind of public goods. Um, as a way to, on one hand, point to them as inadequate, right? Like if Jason had heard, uh, you know, Jeremy explaining how the unemployment system is bullshit, um, you know, his response to that would be, yeah, it is really bullshit. And what we need is, a, is an entrepreneur who can step in and, and create a better system. And that's what the gig economy is, right? But this is a part of the, uh, this is a part of that kind of capitalist, free market, Republican, conservative playbook, which is to, you know, take away the funding uh, of social services, not update them so that when it comes time to use them, they break. And so you can then use that as an excuse for why it's poor, why it's right. a bad system, why you need something to replace it. This is how uh, you know, this is exactly what like Grover Norquist or like Newt Gingrich, right? Like in this, uh, you know, these kind of more old school Republicans, this is what they've done as well, right? It's like, you know, I, I want to, uh, you know, shrink the government so small that I can drown it in a bathtub. And and the whole reason behind mm -hmm. that is it, it's all in this long game strategy that they're playing where they're. Uh, you know, they, they are weakening what they see as the enemy or what they see as the barrier standing in the way of marketization, weakening it to the point that everybody who has to use it 
um, all they know is it doesn't work and they don't like it and it's awful and it's bad. And so they look somewhere else. But what they don't see is that behind the scenes where it was made awful and made bad on purpose as a way to create mm -hmm. space for these fucking ghouls like Jason to step in and not create something better, but create something that they can uh, extract value from. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's, um, you know, I think that another that this also reminds me of another point of our discussion that really resonated, you know, this the history of how, you know, the post-war, quote unquote, golden age of capitalism decayed, right? Part of it, part of that decay was there are there were fundamental problems that emerged because of how good it was in the pursuits of or the interests of individual actors and also the guiding interests of the United States to prevent certain contradictions from emerging, right? The, the post-war uh, error was doomed because one of the ways to maintain it, right, for the United States was to delegate regional autonomy and dominance to Germany and Japan, right, in ways that ended up saturating the global market with agile competitors and manufacturers and also all sorts of other competitors regionally that were trying to supplant them, but did not, you know, get the memo, of course, that, hey, like Germany needs to control this so that the United States can have a certain surplus recycling mechanism of trade globally so that it can both provide, uh, you know, its citizens with some goods and with some uh, certain living standard, it's manufacturers, it's weapons contract, like it's like it's arms dealers. Like there's no, because that memo, you can't write that memo and send it out to everyone. And you can't also centrally plan it as finely as they wanted because we're capitalists, right? We're free market. That ends up setting in stage a lot of dominoes, which end up with financiers dominating the economy, financiers searching for everything, uh, for every single thing that smells like money you know, to shove in themselves into and eventually finding nothing other than like smartly exploiting people and over time eroding the last barrier to um, to minimizing costs completely, which is employment law, right? I mean, like a, like the, VC, the venture capitalists, the gig economy should be understood as coming across a really hard problem, which is employment law that imposes a minimum standard of rules, regulations that impose minimum level of cost in every operation, right? And the goal of these people being, how can we whittle away at that until it's gone so that then we can get a return? Because they can't get a return at the legal level, but they can get a return at the illegal level. But if they operate fl flagrantly at the illegal level, unless they're Uber or unless they're, you know, they can't cut it, you know, only a few companies can really like be so flagrantly corrupt. Um, and it helps that it, one of these companies decided to be so, right? Um, and I think that that ends up being like also important part of the story, right? That, you know, venture capitalists, financiers of these exploitative operations, it's a small social network. It's a small closed group. I don't think it's a coincidence that a lot of these people who fund one another companies, right? Um, are also have also in their portfolio one or two companies that are like really innovating ways to break the regulations and to break the employment law. Because if that company does it, then every other fucking company that didn't need to do it doesn't need to do it. And then now it becomes a much profitable, much more profitable enterprise. 
because it's not profitable for a lot of these companies, right, to pay real wages to people and benefits, but it is profitable for them to lie that they're going to do it. And then it would be even more profitable for them to actually be able to do it um, or to be able to actually employ that many people without ever having to pay them a real cost, right? And all of this comes from like the, you know, the planning fuck-ups that, that state and industrial planners had in the 50s and the 60s. And so it's really, it felt really good reading this to see like, oh, you know, like the automation theorists and their misunderstanding of the situation is intimately connected to like the VC's willful distortion of the situation and exploitation of this moment, right? What Aaron does really well um, in the book is also to show how uh, we mistake one thing for another thing. So, uh, you know, it, it could be easy to look at something like um, Ant's you know, IPO or look at the growth of, of the tech sector, you know, the, the, the quote unquote growth, right? The, the dynamism of the tech sector, we, these, these, you know, massive valuations and IPOs and, and, and all of this, right? It could be easy to look at that and mistake it as growth, mistake it as the economy expanding, when in reality, what it is, um, is it, it's it's value based on not just exploitation, which value is always you know the profit is always based on exploitation, but it's the it's a it's a redistribution of value based on immiseration. There's no longer this kind of I mean one of the reasons why you know the the kind of post war you know so called golden age of capitalism, which was itself an anomaly, right? It was right. an anomaly set about by these like this like world historic circumstances, you know, caused by the war and this uh, rapid mobilization of the war machine and the economy around it, this right. totalization and of, of war mobilization, but also the, the complete, not just hollowing out, but complete destruction of industrial centers. Right. Um, like the know, continent that conquered the world got bombed the fuck out. And then like, <laughs> you know, like it is, I think it's, I encourage people to read NSC 68, which is a document by American planners who are really frank. I mean, in the National Security Council, they are paid to let their hair down and be frank because they're planning empire, right? And there they're like, you know, look, this is an unnatural situation, an unnatural arrangement and a historical moment. To maintain it, we have to do crazy shit. So what is the crazy shit we're going to do to maintain a situation where a few hundred million people in a world of billions are going to control more than half of the wealth, half of the economic activity, half of the manufacturing impact, uh, um, capacity, half of all the gold. Like, what are we going to do to be able to preserve that so that we can just keep that forever, right? Mm -hmm. That's the, that is the thing that people need to always remember when thinking about how the 60s and the 50s were planned and why it went so poorly because it was like really such it was it was not fated to be a permanent arrangement it was always an unstable one the question is like what was going to fuck it up time or the planners yeah that golden age period where um it did create did create a middle class not for everybody of course it was a highly racialized middle class and a highly uh, geographically uh, you know, uneven middle class. It created a substantial middle class enough that for a lot of people, they could fool themselves into thinking um, everything was good. 
And if it wasn't good for you, it could be good, right? If you just made the right moves or, or got the right job, uh, it, it could be good for you as well. And But that's largely because, as Aaron points out as well, is that, um, you know, it was, it was off of the back of this massive investment into massive investment from government largely you know capital investment into manufacturing into producing things which then produced good jobs right i mean that's what you know it's 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 what the places like detroit were built on right that these kind of union jobs these good jobs that could actually support a family because they were in a manufacturing sector that was actively producing real products and real capital and so there was this this massive amount of growth as well. I mean, obviously, capital was taking a uh, disproportionate, wildly disproportionate amount of the of the income from that growth uh, as opposed to labor. But there was, but everybody um, was on average experiencing growth. Um, and but but what we see now is quite the opposite of that. What you see is a. a the, the ramping up of immiseration, it's a self-consumption, right? It's capital is no longer um, producing anything uh, except for a fictitious capital, right? It's producing things on the balance book, right? That's the only way it's producing things. But instead, uh, where it's uh, extracting value is through consumption of the working class, right? Through immiseration. And it's, it's an by definition, unsustainable uh, strategy, because at the end of the day, you can only consume so much of a finite resource. And in this case, that finite resource is people. It's it's human labor. Um, right. And you can only immiserate people so much until they, they quite literally die and they're not able to produce anything more. And that's, I, that's what we're seeing now, right? And this gets back to um, our conversation with Danielle Carr uh, last week. You know, talking about how capital is constantly trying to outpace and escape this declining rate of profit, and now what they're but now it, they're not even trying to outpace it by outgrowing it. They're just trying to ward off the hunger pains by consuming everybody around them, and and at the end and eventually, and we're getting to that point where there there's nothing left for them to consume. Like, you know, do you think that these people think or, you know, groups of people, elites, classes, you know, what have you believe that there's a switch that they can flip? Or is this something where they just got to, like, commit 100 percent, whatever the consequences? Because I thought it was interesting. I asked Aaron about whether he thought that elites believed in the nonsense they told us. And he said he talked about how it's not really or seem to talk about how it's not really a case of like them believing it or not. It's like when they look out the world, right? We look out at the world and we see suffering people. We see people unable to live the lives as they want to. But when they look out at the world, they see their servants, they see their supplicants, they see people who are serving or whose existences are angled in one way or another to support theirs. And so that question of their welfare doesn't really come into the picture because the, their existence, their mm -hmm. interaction, their mode of a connection is how can you help me, right? Yeah. And I and I wonder if like ever there's ever going to be a point where you know like there was in the eve of uh, 
the New Deal, when like the New Deal was fashioned as a sort of compromise to prevent workers from outright revolting and to save capitalism. If, if like capitalists at this point are just incapable of that sort of like self-awareness, if, or if maybe they didn't even have that self-awareness back then, and what what did the trick was like just like one <laughs> one capitalist or his network of capitalists deciding that you know they were going or believing in. The reforms that they were going to do is both a way to save capitalism and just like improve human well-being. Like what on their end, I'm curious, like why there's such a commitment to acting like locus beyond their class interest, you know? It's a really good point as well that things like the New Deal and the rise of the welfare state was ultimately a social democratic compromise with capital, right? right? It was a, and I don't think a lot of people fully realize that, um, that, you know, the welfare state was meant as as a solve for many of the pains of capitalism so that capital could continue. Right. It was a way of staving off revolutionary energy quite, quite explicitly. Jason's tweet uh, just is such mm. a perfect encapsulation of this is that what they think that they can do um, is that they can innovate their way out of it. They can innovate a system that not only provides that social safety net, quote unquote, but does so in a way that makes it where um, people continue to have to serve them. Right. So it creates so the the you know their answer to um, the New Deal or to the welfare state is a feudal state. Right. It's a state where uh, you know your livelihood um, is is based on uh, yeah, not not human dignity, not meeting your basic needs um, as a as as a kind of requirement. Um, but as a, a, it's something that you earn, right? You earn the right to live um, and you earn that right by serving them. They are trying to innovate ways to have, have, it, have their cake and eat it too, right? To provide um, a social safety net in the, term, in, the, uh, in the form of like, you know, platform jobs or the gig economy to people, um, but provide the social safety net in a way that uh, creates a servant class to capital. And, and obviously that's not going to work, right? That's not going to work because what you'll end up doing is either having this really large, uh, like an ever expanding reserve pool of labor where it either leads to complete immiseration um, or, you know, which it already is, um, or it leads to revolution, right? It has to lead to change. Someone, I throw long hail Mary bombs toward cookie cutter mother nature's bedazzled synthetic fabric. Life treats the peasants like they tried to fuck his woman while he slept inside. Well, they're merely chasing perfection and them when the clock strikes nine. I'll be waking with the best of the routine caffeine team players, but a cycle of it. Under a dusted angel heart, strange big brother is watching my odometer like buzzard to fold an out talking stealth. We got babies, rubber stamps, and briefcase parts. You're awesome door to door now. Order ten dollars or more. We'll shove it down your throat. And I think that's a key thing that we may not have gotten to is in his postscript, right? He talks about how, I mean, he talked a bit about how mobilization is really the only way that you can get these things out. But we didn't talk about how he tries to explore these types of 
mobilizations because he talks about how labor in one way or another has failed and has become a defensive position. And I don't think that's too much of a controversial point to say. I mean, you know, one of my favorite books is The Fall of the House of Labor by David Montgomery. And like, you know, it ends like in the early 20th century. And the reason that it ends in the early 20th century is because that's when capital beat labor. Right. Mm -hmm. And that like, you know, we got some victories afterwards. We got some reforms afterwards. But in the in, in, in all honesty, you know, it, it is it is when the violence got way too when it became insurmountable, when there was a commitment to the insurmountable violence. And then when compromises were offered. Right. That we lost. Right. And then it ended up with compromises such as, OK, you can have unions, but you're not allowed to strike. Well, what the fuck is the point? <laughs> you know, yeah. like, I mean, there's, there's a real point. Like, unions do help with individual life uh, and in collective, you know, experiences of workplaces, right? They protect you from harassment. Uh, they can help you uh, fight with other people for improvements in working conditions. But if the union cannot strike without punishment, there's a disconnect going on there. And if the union has to fight for the legal right to fight, to strike without punishment, there's also another disconnect going on there. And I think um, then the question becomes, what kind of social movements are options for us in this sort of world, right? Um, and he kind of ex tries to explore, I think, you know, it's a, one way he does this is by exploring the history of the way that which people witnessed uh, historical movements of their day and then reacted to them and used them to formulate their own theories or conceptions of social organization is an important thing because we should be still involved in supporting labor. We should still be involved in whatever movements we can be in, but also like taking lessons from them and thinking about ways in which we could advance them even further because that's what happened with Marx in the Paris Commune. That's happened with Kropotkin in the mm -hmm. Paris Commune as good examples. I mean, out of the Paris Commune, we have some of the most influential experiences on Marx as he abandons his liberal republicanism as, and on Kropotkin, right? As he talks about, you know, organizing an anarchism where if you choose an official to represent you, they, they're gone immediately if they, you know, uh, cross the line. And these are things that pop up every now and then, but are not consistent. It feels like his observation is they're not consistent ideas or features of the way that we engage with our social movements that, you know, when, we had the 2001 uprising when we had um, against the WTO uh, and, and, and globalization for capitalists, where we had uh, Occupy Wall Street, that the that there weren't immediately like insights made and then taken back to the people. And, and in fact, it was more so that there was like rhetoric that was observed and then taken back to the people. Right. Um, that's something that we'll have to reckon with and move past if we really want to uh, take control take control of the fucking world. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it makes me think of, of Peter Frey's has this book that came out a few years ago called Four Futures. It's a really mm. short little pamphlet sized book, totally worth reading. But in that book, he lays out, you know, four potential futures um, that we're heading towards. And one of them that he, he lays out, which uh, his argument is it's the one that, you know, that we're heading towards. And, and I think everything points to yes, is this future that he calls the exterminationist future, mm -hmm. right? Which is, you know, based on this idea of uh, kind of social economy based on exterminationism in the sense of, um, you know, when we consider things like, you know, stagnating economy, um, climate change, 
you know, now take into account things like the pandemic, um, where we actually quite literally see the extermination of large of, of like hundreds of thousands of people just in the right. you know in the U.S. alone, um, through inaction and ineptitude and and just uh, inhumanity. But uh, you know what, what we see is this kind of exterminationism, and I think that that's what's represented in a lot of uh, the the way that the economy works. Right? This is this is that distinction we're getting at between the kind of like this shift that's happening from something like real capital where there is actual growth um, in the economy versus this kind of fictitious capital where it's based on um, immiseration and consumption of human value, rather not just exploitation of human value, but consumption of human value. And, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's quite terrifying. <laughs> and, you know, it gets me worked mm-hmm. up just thinking yeah. about it, mm-hmm. but you know, I, I think on the flip side of that is that what an important point that Peter Fraser's book makes is right there in the title, Four Futures, is that there's not just one future, right? There's not just one thing possible. There's multiple futures possible. And we, we you know, we might be born into conditions um, that are, you know, without having any say in those conditions, but we can uh, you know, we can create the conditions for the future, right? We might be born with the past, but we can create the future out of the, out of those conditions. And so, I, what we really need to know, and I, I think about it in terms of um, in my own work, in terms of like you know Newton's third law of thermodynamics, right? For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And I, you know, when we think about the exterminationist pathway that we're on. While that might it might kind of sap us of this energy, or it might make us feel defeatist or fatalist um, in it. But I, I don't think it should. I think it should make us feel energized, because we are now aware of the action that is confronting us, and we are now aware of the scope and scale of the reaction that's required to to confront that, to overcome it, to turn that pathway towards a different future. Um, and, and, you know, so I, I think that should energize us. And I think that that is one thing that um, Aaron's book and Aaron's work does really well. And you guys kind of touched on it uh, in the interview is laying out what, what must come next, what, this po- what a post-scarcity world should look like, what leftist utopian visions need right. to look like and should look like. One of the things I wanted to put in direct conversation with with uh, Aaron Beninov's work um, is this kind of uh, this this tale of two Aaron's, right? So mm-hmm. we've got Aaron Beninov talking about kind of laying out what the what a post scarcity world would look like and how um, socialist technologies can be created uh, to contribute to the values that form the basis or form the foundation of this post-scarcity world. But on the other hand, um, you have uh, something like Aaron Bastani's work on uh, fully automated luxury communism. Um, And I think Beninov is right when he mentions this book or this work in the interview, you know, he mentions it as um, something that he doesn't fully uh, agree with, but agrees with the necessity and agree and, and is joyful to see these kinds of leftist utopian visions even just emerging right that these things are even possible for us to talk about in a serious way and the same thing goes to something like 
um, Nick Cernchek uh, and Alex Williams book on inventing the future, right? These kind of what does this, um, how do we harness accelerationism or how do we harness uh, you know, automation um, to create a post-scarcity world? What I do want to say though, um, and I'm, I'm willing to be a bit more, uh, you know, critically edged on this than I think uh, Aaron Beninov was in the interview. He was very diplomatic. Um, and, you know, <laughs> I think one of the things that putting in conversation, Aaron Bastani and Aaron Beninov tell, uh, books tell us is that there's good ways and better ways um, to, to go about how to think about you know, what, what would our reaction to the exterminationist future look like? What does our reaction to this, this economy, this economy, you know, this, this, this economy based mm. on, on conning and grifting, um, oh, yeah. based on imagination and fictitious capital, uh, what does it look like? You know, for Aaron Bastani, I think his, his mistake um, in, in that book is to take seriously the techno-utopianism of Silicon Valley and think all we need to do um, is take control of the will and put the pedal to the metal, right? We just need to accelerate that, what Silicon Valley is doing, but uh, we just have to control it, right? It just yeah. has to be all of yeah. the, all of the, um, you know, asteroid mining and DNA editing and vat grown meats, you know, the, his whole book is just this, this basically like this litany of things that, um, you know, Elon Musk uh, would cream his pants talking about, yeah. but he talks about it in this this really positive way. That's like actually uh, these things could lead to um, a fully automated, luxurious communism, right? If only we were in control of the DNA right. editing and the asteroid mining and the vat grown meat, then it would actually be good. And mm -hmm. I, I think that's I think that's a category mistake, and it gets it's something that Aaron Beninov is really good at doing as well, which is just inverting what you know what Bastani sees as the primary mover is the technology, and from the technology he says um, these we can actually create communism out of capitalist technologies, and that's a mistake. That is a crucial mistake, which technopolitics, the theory that motivates this podcast, will tell us. Is a, is a mistake that goes all the way back to some of the first or, or faulty steps that the Soviet Union even made, right? This idea that all we need to do is beat capitalism at its own game. We need to be better capitalists right. than the capitalist. No, I mean, that that is a completely wrong way to look That's at trash. it, right? You cannot, you cannot control a the blood magic. You cannot right. control <laughs> a corrupting force and think... Um, it, Actually, I can control the blood magic to make mm -hmm. it work for me. It won't consume. If only consume, I, I summoned Molodoc, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and yeah if, I, if I do the right rituals to summon Moloch, then Moloch will serve my right. ends. <laughs> <laughs> and I think uh, that's why, you know, for me, the some of the most important utopian visions have been ones where it is like so radically divorced from the reality that we have now that your primary question is not what tech will get you there, but what social transformation will get you there, right? Because at the end of the day, we need to stop being concerned about what technical fix is going to yield a certain outcome in the productive process or in uh, social arrangements. We need to be concerned with how do we rescue humanity, our values, our morals from uh, the past 
two, three hundred years of being corrupted by capitalism and the years before that by mercantilism and feudalism and, you know, by by every single other political system which has not been centered on human beings. Right. You know, I find myself thinking a lot about cosmism because Russian cosmism has this insane premise. The idea is you need we have to create a society where we can revive every single human being that's ever lived. You know, the question there, obviously, you know, Cosmos, I think, will talk to you about the technical limitations of that. But the real thing is not like the technical limitations. The real thing is thinking about life and death and thinking about who deserves things and what deserving things means and what resource and how resources should be allocated and what's what what a society should be for so does society solely be for just like you know this or that desire of or realms of necessity and freedom for the living should it be in some way that honors the dead should it be in some way that vindicates their struggles or should it be in a way that forgets them and divorces us from the past? And these are questions I think are more valuable than what kind of technical device are we going to be using to bring people back, right? Because, you know, a lot of utopias get caught up in the glitz. They get caught up in like the terraforming dome on Mars. They get caught up in the replicator. They get caught up in the, the artificial intelligence inside of the ship that allows you to live your life inside of the culture, you know, when in reality, like we need to, as Aaron talked about, we need like all that stuff is black box. We need to be asking how we're going to get there. Right. How do you get to a society where conceivably let's, let's say the technology is possible, right? If we had the technology to bring back every single person, would we? Fuck no. <laughs> you know, of course not. We wouldn't. Yeah. Okay. So then the questions are like, why wouldn't we? And um, the you should explore those questions, not so that you can convert everybody to do it, but so that you can learn more about hidden assumptions uh, that we have and whether those assumptions are linked to the technology or whether those assumptions are linked to the larger political system or whether those assumptions are linked to the larger cultural or philosophical assumptions. And, you know, in doing that, right, I think about the utopia I would generate in my mind if I'm thinking about, I want everyone to fly, you know, some shit. It's just like an earth-contained system where it's like we build highways with like three levels spatially instead of one you know <laughs> but if you're talking about like a system where everyone who's ever lived gets to come back you're talking about a system where you have to like reconcile with like do on the first hand you need to solve all the problems that you have on earth right now and you need to do it in a way that will allow people to come back to be able to like be free to like if they want to check out of the society, they come back and they're like a Protestant from 1840 and they're like, y'all are sinners. <laughs> I don't want to deal with this shit. <laughs> you got to let them go to their own world. But if you're letting people also go to their own communities and and and, and such, that, then you got to ask larger questions about how can you have like a politic or a larger community where like such where people have such divergent interests? I mean, it, 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 it leads to discussion of all these interesting questions that are the mm-hmm. ones that we should be asking. But we don't because tech is what is at the forefront of our minds when the tech that we have is not even that interesting what's the the most advanced tech that we have is like a permanent sensor collector that sits in your pocket all day and holds all that information and gives it to people that are not you so that they could use it against you right that's the that's like the most (laughs) that's one of the most advanced forms of technology that we have and and there's some others of course that have you know whether it's 
petrochemicals or whether it's like forms of energy generation that are interesting and important too. But like, like when we're talking about how we're going to make the world that everyone socially interacts with, we're not talking about how we're going to improve energy generation. We're talking about like the tech that everyone has and like, that's your phone, you know, Mm -hmm. that's your computer, that's your entertainment systems. That's, that's the communication systems and all that shit is just perversely constructed to extract information from you so that it can be profitable, right? And, that, um, and that's the thing is that the, the, right. these things are constructed for purposes. And this is something that there's a passage um, from from Langdon Winner's book, mm-hmm. Autonomous Technology, where he he talks, it sticks with me. Ever since I first read it, it's all, I'm, I'm always thinking about this passage, but it's a long explanation or exploration of kind of industrial technology in the Soviet Union and the fact that even someone like Lenin was mm-hmm. really taken with ideas around Taylorism and, right. and you know, really, really interested in how do we uh, harness the, the innovations of Taylorism um, for communist ends, for Soviet ends. Right. And what they in, what the mistake there was thinking that you could take the tools of capital, you could simply see, quite clearly seize the means of production of capital, just turn the factory on and off again, right? I'm, right. I've turned it off, I've turned it off capitalism and I've it's turned like reset, it back like on communism. <laughs> yeah, I just did a Wi-Fi reset on the factory without changing anything in the way that the machinery or the organization of the factory was done. It's, but So what you ended up with was, uh, you know, capitalist um, production tried to put in the service of communist ends. Um, and all it ended up doing is doing really bad capitalism because it was yeah. trying to be organized as communism rather than thinking about, you know, what are the the, the politics that are built into these technologies? What are the Please social relations? Please don't kill us Marxist Leninists <laughs> that, don't, that don't agree with that reading. <laughs> you know, it's like, what are the social relations that are built into these technologies? And I think that that's the same exact mistake that um, someone like Aaron Bastani is making in his work, which is that it's ultimately putting the technology first, right? It's, it's like politics becomes downstream from technology, but that's a complete inversion of reality. And that's what Aaron Beninov is really good at doing, which is showing that inversion, that actually technology is and always has been and must be seen as downstream from the politics. And I want to read a a paragraph from um, Beninov's book here where he really, I think, sums this up quite well. So he says, quote, by focusing on technological progress rather than the conquest of production, Automation theorists end up largely abandoning what has been seen as the basic precondition for generating a post-scarcity world, from Thomas More's 1516 utopia to present-day Treconomics. This precondition is not the free distribution of money, as the most recent wave of automation theorists have it, but rather the abolition of private property and monetary exchange in favor of planned cooperation. Instead of presupposing a fully automated economy and imagining the possibilities for a better and freer world created out of it, we could begin from a world of generalized human dignity and then consider the technical changes needed to realize that world. And that is the key right there, right? For, er- for Beninov's vision, it's not about imagining 
a, a Sears catalog of innovations that currently exist or could exist, but rather instead imagining the foundational and fundamental values, politics, and social relations that must organize the world. And then from there, considering what technological changes are needed to make that world a reality and what technological innovations may flow from that world. Right. And that's the important thing, right? We cannot be running into this thinking the tech that we have now is part of that solution. Some of the tech we have very, right now may very well be part of the solution of free time for everyone, of ensuring there's leisure, of ensuring there's post-scarcity, right? But uh, you know, technology is a political system. It's a te technical systems are political, right? The, re the redistribution of resources that is necessary to advance them is political, as is the application of their outcomes, right? And so with that in mind, it does not make sense for us to look at the technology that we have now and think that that's what the toolkit that we need to work with. We need to be working parallel here in the way that he thinks about a realm of necessity and a realm of freedom, right? We got to be thinking about tech as like tech that has been developed through capitalist innovation and then tech that will be developed through the socialist innovation. I'm sure there will be some intersections. There will be some things that were developed through capitalist innovation that will happen to be useful in socialist innovation, all right? But we still need to go through this through actual investigation as socialists because our primary concern will be different. There are all sorts, of, there are unimaginable amounts of technology designs that have been given up because they were not going to give a profit, right? What would a social media network look like? A global multi-billion user network look like if its primary goal was not to keep you engaged as long as possible so that you would yield large conversion rates for advertisers and for other you know entities that were on the platform. We, I mean, that sort of conversation is one that we don't have, <laughs> you know, so mm -hmm. the idea, the imagination there is bankrupt, but that's like just one example of the sort of alternatives that we should be and could be pursuing, right? You know, like, mm -hmm. Jer yeah, Jeremy said, you know, there's no, there's no fucking money in the cure. There's no money in the cure at all <laughs> whatsoever, you know, but that's the point. We're not interested in the cure. You know, we're inter we're interested in transforming the condition. Well, I mean, you know, partially we are a little bit, right? But we're interested partially in like transforming the condition so that disease doesn't emerge in the first place, right? We want a world order and a social order where everyone is connected. Everyone has their needs met because if everyone has their needs met and everyone is connected, then we can be humans, not workers, you know, not servants, not supplicants for capitalists, but human beings. And that is the place at which we can all decide what that means for us. Do you want to be a writer? Do you want to be a you know a painter? Do you want to be an explorer? Do you want to be an archaeologist, an anthropologist? Do you want to be a doctor? Do you want to be a surgeon? You know, do you want to be a caretaker? These are questions that most people don't ever really get to ask because of all the limitations that are placed on them in society. A world where we get to finally ask that for ourselves is the goal. And that I think has such an immense inherent value that it is worth doing whatever you have to do to ensure that it happens. A hundred percent. I mean, just to kind of bring us to a close here and wrap us back up to the beginning. And this is a core and everything that you just laid out is also uh, fundamentally part of the, the Luddite ethos as well, right? You know, Luddism is not about smashing machines indiscriminately. It's about smashing the machinery of capital 
right? right? As a way to create space for the machinery of humanity to to step in, to be created, to to thrive. And you know, we 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 started our conversation by talking about all of the the you know that the capitalists right now are in the business of imagination, right? They're in the business of creating imagination in terms of fictitious capital, money that doesn't actually exist in reality, but exists on the balance books. It's all that, it's, it goes back to uh, that uh, the, the hook theory of finance, right? That you look at the, the buffet in front of you and some people see empty plates and bowls and other people see an overflowing cornucopia of delicious things to, to consume and dive into. That's about creating imagination. But what capitalists are also really good at doing uh, is um, creating anti-imagination in the sense of um, constraining other th- what what it is that we are capable of imagining of, right? This is what um, like what Mark Fisher would call capitalist realism, right? This idea that only the capitalist system is is able to exist. Um, that everything else is is impossible, unfeasible, unimaginable. And that's bullshit. That is complete bullshit. That is a ploy. That is a strategy mm-hmm. um, to keep you from even imagining that something like socialist innovation is even possible, right? That only capitalist innovation is possible. And the whole point of that is to shut off entire realms of possibility, entire possible futures that might flow from them, and entire ways of rejecting the exterminationist pathway that we are on. Our mission here must be to, to, to deny the imaginations of capitalists, to deny the constriction of imagination by capitalists, and to open up new realms of possibility that reject exterminationism, reject their position in society, and reject the pathway that they've put us on. And I think with that, (laughs) I will wrap up and bring to a close our premium episode for this week. Um, Thank you for subscribing, and uh, we will see you next week. See you all next week.